Greetings again, everyone. Do you suppose there are any unseen visitors with us today? Do you suppose that there are any spirit beings who know what is going on in the Days Inn up here off the North Loop in Tyler, Texas? When my sister Dottie was in her late teens and my father was having another of his discussions with her, she grew quite argumentative about the Bible and about God and about my father's religion, as she called it. She would say to him on any number of occasions, well, Daddy, God is just not real to me. And he understood what she meant because God is not real to most people. And as a matter of fact, God is not real to a lot of people who profess God and who go to church and who make a lot of the gestures of religion, who pray, who pay tithes, depending upon which church to which they go, of course, and who have a lot of uh, ceremonial liturgy and a lot of ritual. God is not real to them either. Because if anyone would ever go into one of the major Catholic churches and to really think it through for a moment as to whether or not that man wearing a dress is really wearing garb that is defined and described in the Bible, as to whether or not the people who went back to the nave and lit all the candles are doing so because God looks at each candle and as each candle burns down and the wax turns to greasy smoke and blackens the nave and so on, that God enjoys burning candles and enjoys the smell of wax. Or if he sees, looking down at some of the papal uh, emissaries or the Pope himself going along in the Pope mobile at great crowds and he's making these signs of the cross like this. And does that do something to the crosses and the crucifixes and the rosaries that are held up by chanting people who are screaming out, Viva Papa, Viva Papa? I don't know how much of a naturalist you are, how many of you have read and studied deeply into biology into chemistry, into the physical sciences, if you understand much about how minerals and various of the gemstones form, if you understand about the cleavage properties of minerals and how they will absolutely always go according to law, which cannot be broken no matter what force you use, or how much you have had in your studies in high school and college of the human body, of physiology and anatomy, of eyesight, of the fabulous blessing of being able to hear. Two of my sons cannot hear. They have never heard. They don't have that blessing. Of how all of that happens, looking at the cochlea and the little hammer-like shape of the little mechanism that forms the human ear, and the miracle of that sound that will go from my voice or through the microphone and through the speaker and will actually vibrate an eardrum and be transferred then by that little hammer to the inner ear to a fluid and picked up by a nerve. In the case of my two sons, that nerve apparently is either damaged or missing. Everything else is intact. Their ears are perfect. We've had them investigated. We thought about taking them to the Tracy Clinic. So I studied into the ear a good deal back during those days and since because I wanted to know more about it. I've also studied into the human eye and into various aspects of human physiology and anatomy. And I've studied into dendrology and into the flora and fauna of our environment and into astronomy, and especially I have been interested in the evolutionary so-called sciences of geology and of dynamic and historical geology and of archaeology. Being somewhat of a naturalist, and I find that in the Word of God, David was a naturalist and Solomon was, and that the prophets of God continually pointed out the awesome creation of God 
and expressed God to other people and explained God to them as the Creator, as Paul did to the Areopagites when he said, Him whom you ignorantly worship I now declare unto you, because they had a statue or an altar, rather, to an unknown God. And he said, He that made the heavens and the earth, etc., needs no altar, is not worshiped with temples made by men's hands. In him we live and move and have our being. Fish swim in water. And you and I know that if they take a fish out of the water very long, you see it gasping with its gills, and it is striving frantically to collect air, not just from the air, but to collect oxygen from the tiny little microscopic bubbles of oxygen that are present in oxygenated water. They tell a story about a big bass a fellow caught allegedly down at the uh, St. John's River in Florida. And not having the uh, live well at that time, he had only one of these stringers. He caught this great big 10 or 12 pound bass. And uh, he wanted to keep on fishing, so every time he would move and go to a different uh, place to fish, he would pull the bass out of the water. And he got an idea, I think I'll see if I can train this bass to stay out of the water. And so he would sometimes leave it out for 10 minutes, and the next time he left it out for 15 minutes, and finally left it out for 20 minutes. And one time he left it out for 30 minutes. He'd put it back in the water, and it would swim away, and, well, he had it on a, a hook, so it couldn't swim very far. But eventually he left it out for over an hour. So he headed back for the dock in the evening, and there was a narrow little walkway that led from the dock up to the bank, and he got on that, and just as he was walking along there, this bass gave a mighty heave, and it flipped loose and fell in the lake and drowned. <laughs> now, that is an old uh, fishing story, but I want to make the point. Yesterday, I came in and showed my wife some leaves that I'd picked off of our tree. We have a black gum in the backyard, a little graceful double trunk black gum. And right now, the sweet gums and the black gums and the Chinese tallows and a lot of the oaks, especially the hickories that turn a very bright golden yellow, and the hackberries that are a very light greenish yellow, are just beautiful this time of the year. So on three occasions, I've gathered up fistfuls of leaves and I've just arranged them in a gorgeous pattern on just a plate, put them watered, put it on our coffee table. They're there right now. And I found that we were both thinking along the same lines because I showed her this. I said, look at these colors. I said, you know, men, look at gold. You can't eat gold. And it's just there to look at because it's a bright yellow, beautiful metal. But look at God's gold in these leaves and the colors, sometimes four, five, six colors in just one leaf of gold and green and bright red and every kind of a hue that you can imagine. And I held up one and I said, no painter in a canvas could ever duplicate the color that we see in this leaf from our tree. Well, I'm fascinated by those things. I'm also fascinated by the fact that as I sat there with the Bible on my knee this morning, I looked down and my leg was going like that. I don't know if you can see what I'm doing, but my leg was moving. And, of course, you all know what I'm talking about because the artery in your leg that causes the blood to flow to your leg, your calf, and your foot is a very powerful artery that is pumping away from your heart. And so, little tiny motion of my foot as this pump over which I have no control, and thankfully God does, and God keeps it going, was providing blood to my foot. When I breathe in oxygen, I am aware that I am like that fish swimming in the water. And if you take me out of my element and you deprive me of my oxygen, 
I am going to die. I've been reading a number of books. I've read hundreds of books about the World War II era. And I just finished, for probably the third time in 20 or 30 years, a book called Pig Boats. And it's the actual documentary story of every single U.S. submarine, from the old S-boats that were around after World War I, to the fleet-type boats that went out of Fremantle and Brisbane, and that operated out of Honolulu and later on out of, out of uh, Guam and Ulithi once we had those forward bases. And every individual story is there, including the loss of about 29 or so of them out of the hundreds of submarines that we built during World War II. And when you read of this and of the depth charging of some of these submarines, invariably, with only one or two exceptions where they broached and they were shot or bombed by an aircraft, they went down with all hands. And I have imagined in my mind, without going into it in depth, what that would be like, uh, being in a submersible a couple, three hundred feet down and having it suddenly just cave in and the water rushing in on you, maybe even being in a watertight compartment and hitting the bottom and knowing that you had but an hour or two to live and the water hadn't quite reached you yet and you were being deprived as you breathed it of your oxygen. And I've thought a great deal about human life, about the fragility of human life, about the wonders of human life, of this life that God gives us and of nature all around us, of the air that we breathe, of the water and the food that we imbibe, and of the daily metabolic organism that is me, that makes me what I am. And therefore, when I read in the Word of God of His plan and His purpose for all of mankind, and as I get on my knees as I did today privately before coming over here and pray to Him, believe it or not, He is real to me. I don't see a face, I see a brilliance brighter than seven suns. I see, I try to imagine a throne and another great brightness right behind or beside rather at the right hand of this brightness that I cannot see. And I try to pray to them and I try to imagine 24 elders, 12 on each side and great cherubim like huge oxen, eagles, lions and men and a rainbow and millions of angels around. And I try to, in my mind's eye, understand the miracle of being able to say, where no human voice can hear, our Father in heaven, and to know that somehow, just like clicking into a UHF or VHF radio on a channel, that I have managed to connect with God on a channel, and that the minute I say, Father in heaven, and I am praying in my mind, aloud or silently, that I actually am in contact with God. That's an awesome thought all by itself, isn't it? What if you had a very dear friend who worked in the national headquarters in Washington, D.C. of the IRS? Would you feel a little bit better about your tax return? What if you had a friend who was the closest personal friend of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? And if you had a son in the Air Force, would you feel a little better about your son? What if you had a friend high up in state government, or a friend in the FBI, or a friend who was the captain of the police department? Would you feel that you had an advocate, that you had a go-between, a representative, a proponent, in case of troubles that might come along? If you will all turn to John, the 15th chapter, we can read some things right quickly that a lot of people have perverted, twisted, and misunderstood. <coughs> 
chapter 15, I am the true vine. Now these are the parting instructions prior to that final Passover and prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ from chapter 14 and 13 on is the Passover, of course. 14, let not your heart be troubled. The 13th chapter we know is where he gave Judas the sop. But in the 15th chapter, he continues this dissertation, I am, notice those words, he said that to the Jews and it absolutely infuriated them because it was the statement he made before Abraham was, I am. I am the true vine, obviously an analogy. And my father is the husbandman, the farmer, the vine dresser. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. Now you can understand that analogy very, very simply. I used to have a grape vine in my garden in Pasadena. And you know that a vine is very powerful and it, it will wind around. You're familiar with vines, it'll grow all the way up to the top of a tree. And each major branch that comes off it will have other smaller branches and they will bear great clusters of grapes. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. You call them suckers, or if they die, or they don't have any fruit on them, or if you do that with regard to your roses, we have climbing roses around a little fence out in front. We clip those off, or better yet, sometimes Chester does when he comes over there. I don't do that as often as Chester does when he helps us out and comes over and works on the yard. That bears not fruit, he takes away. That is, he prunes it, he clips it off, throws it away, it dries out, and it's burnt on the trash. Every branch that bears fruit, he purges it. So if it's a fruitful branch, but it has little tiny twigs on it that are not fruitful, he will clip those off and make sure that one branch is fruitful. He said this, that it may bring forth more fruit. And you cannot cause it to bring forth more fruit if you allow dead wood, if you allow suckers, as they're called, that are actually causing some of the sap to be diverted from producing grapes to flow into a useless part of the vine. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide, stay in me. Stay affixed, attached to me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, it can't just be a branch lying out there. It's got to be attached to the vine. Except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, he repeated. You are the branches. And who is he talking to? He didn't say the church is the vine. He didn't say Peter is the vine or the Pope is the vine or any human leader is the vine. He insisted that he, twice he said it, I am the vine. And you are not a major trunk of the vine, not a secondary vine, but each one of the twelve were branches. There were twelve branches. You are the branches. Well, there are eleven at this time. There were to be twelve later on. He that abides in me and I in him the same brings forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And that's the point. There is a great deal more that I could read here, but let's go to the part where he began to make a promise about an advocate, a paraclete, a go-between, a representative, a proponent, a defender, a champion, someone who is a representative. He said... When the Comforter is come, verse 26, the end of this chapter, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Now the word he, if you look it up, and I've done so on a number of occasions, I did it again today just for your uh, elucidation. 
It is from the Greek autos, A-U-T-O-S, and you can recognize that word in English, can't you? But it actually has to do with, with a reflexive action. It's a very important root word. It's a pronoun. Either stands by itself or used alone or in a composite of the third person. So it can be and is, is used throughout the New Testament of the Bible from the Greek word autos in the following manner. It can be it, itself, one, the other, mine, my own, the same, him, my or thyself, your or yourself, her, selves, she, that, their, T-H-E-I-R, them or themselves, these or those things, this man, those, together, very, and which. In all of those ways. You do not get some kind of information about the word he, which tells you, as some of the advocates of the Trinity do, that the Holy Spirit is a separate person from God. We know the Bible speaks of God the Father time and again. We know that it speaks of the Spirit of the Father. We know it speaks of Christ time and again. And we know it speaks of the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify, etc., talking about the prophets of old who were not dealing with the Father, but were dealing only with the one who is the Logos that we know of as Jesus Christ. So the Father has a spirit, and Jesus Christ has a spirit. But that's hard for us to cope with or to understand because spirit is almost foreign to us, which is what my whole message is all about, is to make it a little more real to us today. Now, if Jesus Christ has a spirit, the spirit of Christ, and if God the Father has a spirit, the spirit of God the Father, and the Holy Spirit is a separate spirit entity, then does the spirit have a spirit? Kind of a puzzle, isn't it? Well, that's the trouble. Some analogies break down, and some of the stupid assumptions of human beings who try with their carnal minds to decipher and to understand spirit, and who have not been converted, who have not really surrendered their will to God, and therefore have not received of God's Holy Spirit, they are blind, dumb, and deaf to the real spiritual understanding of spiritual things. It is as foreign to them as Greek or Romanian or perhaps Vietnamese would be to all of us. Completely foreign. They can't understand it. You shall also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. Chapter 16, verse 1. They will put you out of the churches, the synagogues. Yea, the time comes that whoever kills you will think that he does God a service. And these things they will do unto you because they've not known the Father but or me. Now, he said a little later on, nevertheless, I tell you the truth in verse 7, it's expedient for you that I go away. If I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him, and that's advisable. It could be it, but it's masculine and gender coming from God the Father unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me and because he died for the sins of the world, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world, it is Satan the devil, is judged. I have many things yet to say unto you, but you can't bear them now. And he did later on. It said that he expounded unto them everything about himself beginning from Moses and throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth 
for he shall not speak of himself, for whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come, meaning that he would convey from God's throne, from God the Father, from Christ at his right hand, the things that he wanted to put into the minds of his disciples and of his members of his church. He will show you things to come. He will glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. Profound verse, passed over very quickly, sounds like spiritual flavoring, and salt and pepper, but it's talking about the very mind of Jesus Christ and his position in the Melchizedekan priesthood as our daily high priest and his intercessory work that is to continue from the time that he was assumed into heaven until the time that he comes back to this earth, as it says, that his enemies are made his footstool until the time of the restitution or the restoring of all things. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. And I think that there are things that we oftentimes don't even understand that God has shown us a broadening, uh, a deepening, a fuller understanding of his plan and his purpose as God has done, I think, in recent years with regard to the Feast of Tabernacles. I think that the information about the last great day and the eighth day that I intend to preach a little more next year and to expound upon that is very fascinating, very interesting, the very sign of circumcision and the fact that Christ received it in his body as an eight-day-old baby on the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles and what the sign of circumcision in the flesh of Abraham really meant. And that Abraham is the father of the faithful, and if ye be Christ, whether you're black, yellow, or brown, then be ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And when Christ spoke as he did on the last great day about rivers of living water that would flow out of whomsoever would come unto him, that he was showing that salvation would be opened up to all of mankind, where previously, up until the time of Pentecost, salvation was of the Jews, had never been offered to anyone else. There is symbolism in the woman who stands in the sun who has how many stars in her array or her Decor decoration around her in Revelation, the 12th chapter. Twelve. Twelve stars. The church that is in the wilderness is merely analogous to the New Testament church, but Israel is that nation through whom God is going to save the world. And there was dual seed, multiple seed. Kings shall come out of thee, but also that one seed, which is Christ. And the woman is at once the church and Israel, but Israel as the church. When you look at that metaphorical scene of the woman in Revelation, the 12th chapter, it's got to mean the church primarily because it says that those who are the uh, end time remnant of receipt are those who keep the commandments of God. And you could never say that about physical Israel. All right, if you would now turn to Acts, the first chapter. Remember that the disciples were looking up astonished when the angelic voice came to them. But if you will read just what Luke began to write to Theophilus, the former treatise of I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus both began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up after that he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. Do we think that we would be closer to God if Christ could walk through this wall right now than we are otherwise? I think, I like to think that yes, we would be. I mean, that would be my answer. I don't know because there are scriptures in the Bible that seem to tell me that if I were at the foot of a mountain that was on fire 
and blazing with flame and earthquakes and a huge voice that hurt my ears that I might run away with the rest of them. They all ran away and said, let not God speak to us anymore, but you, Moses and Aaron, your spokesman, you speak to us. We like to think that, though. It's a, it's a treasured thought that I think a lot of us entertain from time to time, that if we could just sit here and talk to an angel, if we could just see Jesus Christ, if we could maybe have God's telephone number, if we could maybe get a letter from God, if God would talk to us. I know a lot of fakes and frauds and charlatans will get on television and say, now God spoke to me yesterday and all of that, but that's just a lie and absolute nonsense, and I think everyone really knows it deep down inside. But the trouble is, it just gets into a, who do you want to believe, you know, me or he or he or they, because they will argue, oh yes, I did, I really, I heard God's voice. Well, was he a tenor, a bass, baritone, what? What language did he speak in? I've always wondered why the plates that Joseph Smith and company began to translate ended up in 1611 King James English instead of frontier American, but that's another question. But some of those claims are interesting. He showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them 40 days. And there's nothing more infallible than showing you the wounds, nothing more infallible than the same person, even though disfigured, whose voice and demeanor they recognize, nothing more infallible than actually eating a meal and seeing that the same habits were there. They knew and they understood beyond, beyond the shadow of a doubt that he was Jesus Christ. Being seen to them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, commanded them they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard of me. And we just read where he told them about that promise of the paraclete or the comforter or the advocate or the go-between or the defender or the representative would be there for them. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the holy pneuma, the Holy Spirit, not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And I have tried to point that out many, many times, that they did not see yet that this was to be a global kingdom ruling every nation on this earth for a thousand years at all, but we're talking about the reestablishment of the kingdom as a greater Solomonic or a Davidian kingdom to the extent that David or Solomon ruled those borders all the way from Goshen clear up to present-day Iraq and Syria. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but you shall receive power. The margin says the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you and seems to imply that there is even more to that. Power. Now, the word for power is dunamis, D-U-N-A-M-I-S. And if you'll recognize that in the word dynamics or the word dynamo or even the word dynamite that Nobel attached to the powerful explosive that he manufactured. You shall receive power. And the word does mean dynamic power. It means force. It means energy. You will be energized. You will be vivified. You will be given Power, force, energy. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. When the fertile egg in the womb of your mother in its cycle was there, it was headed toward death. It was going to die unless something happened. 
And thankfully for you and for me, in that particular cycle, something happened. Life attacked the egg, life penetrated the egg, and life energized the egg and gave it the power to begin a separate life nurtured by the mother, which eventually resulted in you and in me. If you look at that analogy, and after all, God Almighty is the designer of the human body, he is the creator of Adam and Eve, and he is the creator of human procreation and of animal procreation, of kind according to kind. There is such a thing as microevolution, that is, that within the macro uh, species or of all the Genesis kinds of the cow or the bovine or the four uh, stomached, cloven hoofed, cud chewing creatures of the earth, there is almost limitless variety from a tiny, as they call them, dick dick. If you've ever seen one or a little diker, I've seen them scampering around the woods in Africa, and they're only about that long and about that high, little tiny hoofs, cutest thing you ever saw, little bitty spike kind of a horn on them. And they're the world's tiniest deer to the world's largest deer, which are, do you know what they are, the, of, the, of the deer family that actually shed their antlers? Moose. The largest of the deer family is the moose. I've got one on my walls about 56 inches, and the antlers are about this big at the base, and a great big huge palm and big spikes coming out from it. Those fall off, and they are completely regrown every single year, the most phenomenal thing of growing bone. So there is almost limitless variety within microevolutionary sphere, and that's where some people go astray, but there is no such thing as macroevolution. Cows don't become people, people don't become pigs, pigs don't become donkeys, etc. But fish, the human race, the human being, all the way from some of the Nephilim and the Anakim and the Zumzamims, as they were called by the Amalekites, that could have been up to 20 and more feet tall. Huge men. Remember that Og, the king of Bashan, had an iron bed that was something like, I think it was 16 feet long, correct me, I think it was 16 feet by about 6 or 7 feet. That was his iron bedstead, gigantic. And some of them had six fingers and six toes. They were gigantic creatures. So from the gigantic creatures like that to a little pygmy, and I've seen them in circuses, and so have you probably. The little people, as they call themselves. Here, uh, about a year or so ago, we were right across the street or right next door over here, and they were having a convention of little midgets in the Sheraton. A lot of you saw them. And there were all kinds of these little bitty people around. And I, I was fascinated, but I also my heart goes out to them. It's a kind of a piteous thing because many of them were deformed in certain ways, and one had to actually go in a little motorized wheelchair. But all the way from pygmies and, and genuine pygmies that are in the Ituri forest, who are only about three foot six, to a gigantic 10, 12, 14 foot man. It's possible. But I digress, and that's not a part of my subject. But I want you to understand that in the creation of human procreation and in the creation of flora and fauna, that God put the capability of almost limitless variety within a particular kind. That's why there are hundreds and hundreds of oak trees, and there are hundreds of different kinds of gum trees, and hundreds of different kinds of eucalyptus trees, but they're all one kind, and they tend to be interfertile. It is not for you to know the times of the season, but he said, you shall receive dunamis, power. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. You would be a pretty believable witness if you were someone who was an eyewitness. Now, a lot of you saw the debacle. I won't uh, digress on that. Please don't. 
uh, of yesterday and so on, what's been going on in the House of Representatives and uh, when uh, Kenneth Starr, Judge Starr, was being cross-examined by the Democrats. You see the way our government functions and you see all of the interruptions and all of the, the really uh, crass, unbelievable behavior of people who are supposed to be behaving themselves according to parliamentary procedure and Robertson rules of order and so on and not interrupting one another, etc. You saw some of the hauteur and the arrogance and uh, different people. But you know, the witness who is testifying under oath before a grand jury or in a courtroom who has actually held up their right hand, I guess they used to do that anciently to prove there wasn't a gun or a knife in it, otherwise I have no idea why they don't hold both of it, but, or the left one up, but they hold up the right hand, even lefties do, and swear, which they're told not to do in the Bible, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now, if you were going to be charged with telling the truth about something that you saw or experienced, and if the jury is already rigged, and if the judge has already prejudged the case, and if you tell what you know to be the truth, you know they're going to drag you out and kill you, maybe torture you first, will you still tell the truth? A lot of people would have difficulty with that. That would be a time when most people would lie. A lot of people lie, and I won't digress into that for a lot of other reasons, and under nowhere near that kind of duress. But these witnesses faced that very situation on many occasions. And eventually, it cost the lives, in one way or another, of all of them. I don't think all 12 were martyred. We have no such knowledge of, say, Andrew, Peter's brother, or Bartholomew, or Simon the Canaanite, but we certainly do in the case of Stephen, who was not one of the original disciples, but one of the 120, and the Apostle Paul, who knew that he was going to be offered up, and that when they, as eyewitnesses, believing to the depth of their being, because it wasn't just belief. With millions of people, doctrine is belief. The church they go to is belief. There's a difference between a belief and eyewitness knowledge. A difference between believing it and knowing it. Believing it is one thing, it's something you intellectually hold to be true. Knowing it is something that you would die for because you absolutely know it to the depth of your being. So these were the kinds of witnesses they were to be, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. Now, when he had spoken those things, he was taken up, and the two men said, Why do you stand gazing this same Jesus, verse 11, which is taken up from you shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go? I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to the fifth chapter. Uh, let's go to the fourth chapter first, and we'll come to the fifth chapter in just a moment. Peter and John had been arrested. In the fourth chapter, you read of that. They preached through, resurrection, through Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, and they put hands on them and put them in hold. Verse 3, so they arrested them and clapped them in jail. And it was the evening. There were about 5,000. Well, of course, this was competition. And so the Jewish leaders were very, very irked and very upset. And Peter gave them quite a speech. And then, and I won't read all of that, but verse 8 through about verse 12, he then again, he preached Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand before you whole. He was being examined because of the healing of the man at the gate called Beautiful. Now when they saw, verse 13, the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. And that's absolutely not true, of course, but that was their perception because they spoke with a hill country Galilean accent and not the erudition of a pharisaical doctor of the law. 
they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. So they're eyewitnesses. And they spoke boldly. Talk about bold. They were talking before a group of men that they knew wanted to kill them if they said anything wrong, meaning anything at all, about the truth involving Jesus Christ. And they said it and even said, you, and laid the charge and the blame right at their own feet. You have killed. Now, beholding the man which was healed, standing with them, verse 14, they could say nothing against it. You ever met people with this kind of a spirit and an attitude? I certainly have. I know where a bunch of them are alive and well around this earth in different places, different nations right now. The truth doesn't matter to people once their minds are made up and their mindset is such that they know exactly what they're going to do. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people are very afraid by a scripture that some people will misinterpret. Uh, see if I can find it real quickly, and I won't ask you to turn there, but it just as an aside, that there is a statement about Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright in the book of Hebrews, and you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he, quote, found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. That isn't the correct translation. The correct translation is that he found no way or no place to change his mind you see, if you read it the way the translators incorrectly put it there, it sounds like he was repentant. Oh, he was repenting. He was praying and crying and caterwauling. Oh, please, God, forgive me. But he found no place because God wouldn't forgive him. He'd already committed the unpardonable sin. No, 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 no. The original Greek is he found no way to change his mind. He found no place, no manner in which he could become convicted of a different point of view. He stuck to what he did and he was caterwauling and crying because of the penalty imposed upon him. He was sorry because of what God was going to impose, what God was going to do, but he wasn't sorry because of his mindset. His mindset remained unchanged. And a person with a mindset that is unchanged can do a lot of weeping, wailing, crying, and begging God not to punish them. But a lot of people have used that to try to point a finger of accusation at others to say, well, they didn't really repent. They've committed the unpardonable sin. Now, people who will make that accusation, I think, are themselves in grave danger of committing the very sin that they accuse others of having committed. Grave danger indeed. Look at the attitude and the spirit of these people. They see this man who was healed, standing with the disciples, the apostles, and they could say nothing against it, but they wanted to so badly. And when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves. This is wonderful. We love it. Council meetings, little conference going on, little caucus here, little talking. What shall be our strategy? Saying, what shall we do to these men? We want to do something to them. For that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them is evident to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. We wish we could, but we can't deny it. But that it spread no further among the people. Talk about a mindset. Unbelievable lessons in the Word of God about human nature and about posturing pompous Pharisees who are religious and spiritual leaders of the people. 
Unbelievable. Let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John said, and here they were already in manacles. They were already in deep trouble. And look at the courage. Now this is what dynamis or dunamis is all about. This is what the power of the Holy Spirit is all about. This is what the power of conviction sets your jaw, sets your will. You know what is the truth and you're going to stick to it. And you're never going to deviate. And no force, no power, no energy, no threat is ever going to talk to you or coerce you into changing your eyewitness testimony, your absolute truth, your conviction that you know and you know that you know it. Whether it be right on the side of God to listen to you more than to God, you'll have to be the judge of that. We can't but speak the things which we've seen and heard. Well, then it says, when they had further threatened them, and that must have been quite a set to and quite a scene, a lot of, a lot of language there. Well, if you do, we're going to do so and so. You just wait. You just find out, boy. You open your mouth again. I'm telling you. I can just hear it. You know I mean? I just, this is the kind of thing that goes on. When you're threatening someone, you're trying to what? Intimidate them. You're trying to strike fear into their heart to make them be so afraid of you that they won't tell these stories anymore. Finding nothing, they let them go. Finding nothing, how they might punish them. But they wanted to because of the people. For all men glorified God that which was done. And there again is the little kernel of truth. Who was really cracking the whip? The people. The Pharisees were after one thing. Well, two or three things, really, but basically money and power, power and money, money and power, power and money. And that's, that's what makes the world go around, so to speak. And that's true of church organizations. Any church organization that suddenly finds itself sinking due to attrition is going to have to caucus. They're going to have to have a council meeting. They're going to have to get together. How are we going to stop this? What are we going to do now? What letter should we write? What infamous thing should we say? What attack should we make? Wrong. Anytime they do that, that is satanic. It's absolutely of the devil. It's not right. The people who are caucusing saying, how can we get rid of this? How can we punish these people? How can we stop this thing from growing? We're of the devil. And the eyewitnesses with dunamis, with the power of God and the spirit of God in their minds and hearts, were of God. And they were not to be deterred. Now, when they went back to the report to all of their own group, they lifted up, verse 24, their voice to God with one accord and noticed the way they addressed him. Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Heaven, all the stars glittering up there in a starlit, gorgeous, brilliant night. Made heaven and earth, all the beautiful blue-green emerald jewel that is earth as seen from the people who returned from the trip to the moon with these gorgeous pictures that have been published so many times and we published them that show this earth as it is isolated in the blackness of space as one little tiny blue-green gorgeous home for mankind. And it, it, it was a spiritual experience for the astronauts who first saw it from that vantage point and has been, I guess, for those who have even orbited in close orbit of this Earth, only, you know, no higher above the Earth than Big Sandy is from here, but still far enough up to see the curvature of the Earth and to go around it every 90 minutes. But those who came back from and were on the 
surface of the moon got to see it in a completely different light. They saw what to you, the moon, would look about eight times bigger than that, and they could see that gorgeous thing shining up there all the time. What an incredible, awesome thing. And if you feel little when you compare yourself to some of the great creatures of the earth, how little would you feel if you saw the earth from that vantage point? Who by the mouth of your servant David has said, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? And look how apropos that is. Look how apropos. Why did the heathen rage? Because when God intervenes and when God's government takes a hand and when God's righteous kings are obeying God, as in the few cases where you see in the case of judges and you see in a few cases of some of the great restorations that were effected by righteous kings, very rare, but when you see it, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And that's exactly what they were doing right there. For of a truth, and they're praying, and they address God as creator. For of a truth against your holy servant, the word child is erroneous. It should not read child. It doesn't mean a little boy or a baby. It means servant. Whom you have anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Unbelievable. What strange bedfellows indeed. The Romans... The puppet king, Herod, the Gentiles, and Israel, right in the middle and in the thick of all of it. The last people it should have been, together with all these heathen powers and potentates, trying to rise up against Christ. For to do whatsoever your hand and your counsel determined before to be done, whatever God would allow. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto your servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word I'm comfortable today. I'm comfortable up here today. Do you know why? Because every word that I'm reading and hopefully expounding, and I prayed to God that that could be so before I came here today, is God's word. And as long as you're speaking his words and not your own ideas, it's very, very wonderful. You're very comfortable because you know that the dunamis or the power of God's Holy Spirit is giving you those words to speak. By stretching forth your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Now that word added by Luke doesn't mean that right then there was a special supercharging, and they all started babbling, as a lot of Pentecostal people take it. It's merely an annotation, a little addendum, that really summarizes what was happening here, meaning they had already been filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued right on down through the weeks and months and years to speak the Word of God with boldness. Boldness. Now, over in chapter 5, again they'd been threatened. They were brought and set before the council. The high priest rose up, and all the Sadducees, verse 18 of chapter 5, put them in prison. The angel opened the prison doors. And, of course, they then were allowed out by an angelic intervention, a powerful angel. I don't know if they saw the angel, but they were brought forth, and perhaps they did see him because it said that he said, verse 20, go and speak in the temple, the people, the words of this life. And they heard they entered into the temple, and so an angel lets them out of jail and says, go and speak in the temple, and they did. Well, they were again arrested, and so they are brought before 
the council once again. And they said, when they had brought them before the high priest, verse 28, did not we straightly, didn't we strictly, particularly, some people love that word because it's got a lot of syllables and they have a very short vocabulary, so they will not say this person, they will say that particular person as an individual, I could just say him, but anyway, all right, verse 28. Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Well, they knew that's where the blood lay anyway. They were blood guilty, and this was a posture, so that in itself is a lie. Peter said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hung on a tree. And by the way, the word tree is stauros, and it's advisable here and in several other places in the Bible where that very same word is used in the New Testament. Him has God exalted with his right hand to be a prince, king of kings and lord of lords, a prince to inherit a kingdom, and a savior for to give repentance to Israel. To give repentance and repentance is a gift. It is a gift of God. God calls. God opens a mind and allows repentance. It is a gift from God. I will just take one moment of time out right again. Every now and then I will receive some very erudite dissertation from someone. Just last week we had at least two. One was about that thick. One is a full manuscript of a book. Another one is a whole notebook full of all kinds of absolute nonsensical garbage beyond anything I've ever seen before, and maybe even is written by a demon, I don't know. But I've tried to make the point time and time again that you cannot inherit the kingdom of God by learning one doctrine at a time and eventually, with perhaps a certain amount of uh, reluctance and begrudgingly, accept this doctrine, that point of truth, the other doctrine, then add to your knowledge another fourth doctrine, then a fifth one, etc., and then you're knowledgeable and you're in the church. Any more than you can sit down as a young married couple, as I've said, with a yellow legal pad and a pencil and decide to make out whether you want a boy or a girl, blue or brown eyes and blonde or dark hair and take it down to the baby center and, and have them deliver a baby. You can only enter the kingdom of God if you have been granted by your Savior repentance and forgiveness of sins and the begettle of God's Holy Spirit. And you don't need, there can be people who are going to go into God's kingdom who are almost ignorant of Old Testament history, of many doctrines, of all kinds of things about the calendar, and even unclean meats. The 144,000 and the great innumerable multitude are, the innumerable multitude are primarily from Gentile nations. They may have had their last pork roast the night before they're converted. But there are a lot of people who just don't get it that way. They think you've got to just add doctrine to doctrine to doctrine to doctrine. There are people right now that will not fellowship with other people, even in God's church, if their custom or their habit or their way of doing things is not exactly the way they believe things ought to be done. But you know, in the Apostle Paul's admonition in the 14th chapter of Romans, there is room for people in God's church to have all kinds of di different dietary concepts. There is room in God's church for vegetarians. And if we knew that there is a dyed-in-the-wool vegetarian that was going to be there at some time, we're going to have a potluck, we probably ought to go out of our way to make sure that they have a special meal. Or, if they're going to be so offended, I guess we should go to the length of not even having any meat on that particular day. That's what Paul said. So there's room for 
certain things like that. But people are going to come into God's church based upon repentance, forgiveness of sin, and God giving them His Holy Spirit. And that's going to happen very quickly, as it says in Revelation 6 and 7. And we are His witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, that with, with no equivocation whatsoever, will recall to their mind exactly, vividly, just like a technicolor dream, exactly what they saw and what they experienced, and give them the courage, no matter what happens to them, to say so. Whom God has given to them that obey Him. When they, these rotten council members, heard that, they were cut to the heart. Sure, but they weren't convicted. They were just cut to the heart. They were just made furious. They took counsel to slay them. Now Gamaliel was there and he heard all of this. There stood up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. And he said, you men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400 people, joined themselves, who was slain. And all, as many as obeyed him or followed him, were scattered and brought to nothing. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away, that was a tax revolt movement, much people after him. And he also perished, and all, as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. What did Jesus say even about the Pharisees to his disciples when they complained? He said those very same words, let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, they shall both fall in a ditch. In other words, surely as the ringing of the nose brings forth blood, surely you should not pick up a dog by his ears or you're going to get bit. Just let other groups and other people alone. Let them alone. I wish there were some people that would uh, listen to that where I'm concerned. Just let me alone. I'm going to do the work of God as powerfully, as insistently, as continuously as I possibly can with the dynamic that is God's Holy Spirit. They don't need to bother with me. Who am I? As, Paul, as uh, David said to Saul, who am I? A dead dog, a flea after whom you pursue. Let God decide. Well, David wasn't a dead dog or a flea, was he? But in his own estimation, as he looked at the office that Saul occupied, he felt that in comparison, that's what he was. I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you, and I think there are lots of folks who might even hear this tape who need to get the wax out of their ears and listen, you cannot overthrow it, lest happily you be found even to fight against God. They need to listen to that statement. And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, those rotten, filthy Pharisees, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, did it again, but this time they whipped them first and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council now look at the dynamis of the Holy Spirit of God and the way it worked upon their minds. What would be our tendency? 
Why, to get so blisteringly angry, we'd go out and figure a way to get even. Say, he hit me 39 times, I'm going to hit him 247. Uh, he bloodied my lip, and I'm going to cut his ear clear off. But they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. You know why they rejoiced? Because it is the greatest testimony and the greatest proof that they were doing God's will. They were right with God. They were doing what Christ wanted them to do. They were performing exactly what Jesus Christ said. You are to be witnesses of me. And that's what they were. And the dunamis of the Holy Spirit of God that was right there with them gave them the courage, no matter what it cost them, this time bleeding back and shredded clothes, maybe some cut lips and a couple of bruised and closed eyes, and a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. But they rejoiced before God because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. If you will turn to Hebrews 12 and verse 18 in closing, this is a beautiful scripture, and I think it shows once again the nearness of God and what the Apostle Paul said about whether or not we would be closer to God if we're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai or closer to God if we could actually talk to an angel or closer to God if we had Jesus Christ walk through the wall and we saw him. You are not come, verse 18, unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor into blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart, because it was holy ground. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. And he was just trembling. But you are come, and that's you and I. Now this is post-resurrection. This is long after. This is written to the diaspora, or the dispersed of all of Israel. Not Jews, Israel. And there were those maybe in Glastonbury, England, who received a copy of it. You are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, not physical, geographical Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh far better things, or better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he is promising, yet once more I shake the earth, not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signified the removing of those things which are shaken, as of those things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken, which are spiritual, may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, it's about the kingdom of God, not about competing churches. It's not about numbers. It's not about mailing lists. It's not about the numbers of booklets and articles. It's about the coming government that's going to rule the entirety of this earth, including Iraq, Iran, and every other nation on the earth. That's what it's about. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. And he is closer to us than a lot of us think. As close as our next heartbeat.
as close as our next breath of fresh air.